1: This week's episode is an interview with special guest Dr. Damien Huffer. Damien is a bioarchaeologist and also a bit of a superhero. He works to understand and combat the Southeast Asian and global antiquities trade and the online trade in human remains. Amber and I sat down with him to talk about his work. To learn more about Damien and what he does, you can visit thedirtpod.com for our show notes and links to organizations that fight the online trafficking of human remains. We hope you enjoy this episode. We learned a lot. We hope you do, too. On with the show. Damien, thank you so much again for talking with us today. Um, We have a number of questions for you and uh, we'll see where that takes us. So Amber, why don't you start us off? Um, So you are
2: currently a bioarchaeologist and scholar of the antiquities trade, particularly where that intersects with human remains. Can you give us a sense of the career trajectory that led to where you are now? Did you always want to be a a bioarchaeologist? Did you always know what a bioarchaeologist did? Yeah, he was born knowing that.
3: (laughs) If only that would have clarified so many so many confusions. (laughs) If we were only all born knowing exactly what the meaning of our future career was, that would help so many things. Yeah. No, but look, it's thank you again for having me, of course, and uh, it's great to chat. Um, So yeah, so to start off, I mean, that's it's been a circuitous trajectory for sure. Um, Believe it or not, I originally wanted to be a chef, and then (laughs) a musicologist. Really? Yeah. And then a paleontologist, like many children, you know, especially go to archaeology, first have a thing for dinosaurs and then I'm proud <laughs> of that. You know, I grew up in this relatively small town in Colorado, but have and still have family in Tucson. And I was one of those, for me, for archaeology, I was always one of those weird, you know, Caucasian American mutt kids. But who also always had this interest in other cultures, languages and foods. And I got exposed to archaeology and anthropology in high school, but it wasn't really until undergraduate. I did that at University of Arizona. Uh and the UV and the Arizona State Museum allowed freshmen to volunteer on an on ongoing excavation at the time near Tucson of this Hohokam Native American village, about 1250 AD. Mm-hmm. And that just on that first volunteer day, even, uh not even for credit, not even because I was enrolled yet, but I kind of realized oh yeah, this could be a perfect fit, like a field where at least occasionally I could be outdoors in this field-based science, but combined with a means to learn about past and present cultures. And that kind of connected the dots for me, if you will. But, but the osteology came later, to be honest. Um, you know, I had some coursework and excavation experience uh, up to graduate school regarding the dead, but it was really not until graduate school when I moved to Australia. I did my master's at Australian National University in 2005. Uh, that's in Canberra. And that's when I first got to really participate in a cemetery excavation, in this case in Vietnam. And just being there, being <clears throat> among the dead, having to have, you know, learn the skills and the patience to expose them, to deal, handle them properly, to, and then all the science behind understanding how we figure out lives lived in the past, through skeletal, dental, and contextual data, that's really kind of drove home. Yes, as some, in some way or another, you know, learning from the dead needs to be part of my life, but also at the same time, the, like, that was one strand, if you will, but the other strand was then with the antiquity side, the looting side, I met uh, folks, a uh, professor at AU and his colleagues in Cambodia who ran an NGO called Heritage Watch, Uh, which still is active. Uh, They gave talks at conferences and to our departments and really showed the horror of, in this case, looted out Iron Age cemeteries, prehistoric and historic sites in Cambodia that had become minefields, looked very much similar to what the public is familiar with in looted sites in the Middle East, for example. And I originally tried to work with them to develop an educational learning game uh, teamed up with some professors, some colleagues from my undergraduate days to study educational gaming. We thought we could put together a game about, you know, I'm, I'm like anti-looting outreach, you know, a message to tourists about why you shouldn't buy antiquities. It didn't go exactly how we wanted to, but that was the, the, the other strand, the other kind of seed that said, well, I have this connection, and I'm learning, and I'm seeing examples on the street in Vietnam and in their presentations of what looting is doing to the past in many parts of the world. And then the kicker was the Australian Department of Cultural Property, uh, agents of that division in Canberra contacted myself and Dr. O'Reilly, and they wanted our help in a, a human remains smuggling case. There was a dealer in Melbourne who had been caught selling bones with soil on them and corroded bronze jewelry still attached. Yeah, he was selling online out of his shop (laughs) on his websites, and he got busted trying to smuggle in two big cases of this. Cases? Yes. Cases of human remains. Human remains. Everything from finger bones to whole ulna and radii, the whole forearm, to in two cases of tibia and fibula. Like two whole lower legs just with the dirt uh, with the soil uh, still <laughs> attached yeah and very subtle. subtle yeah very, very subtle. subtle but there it is on you know i still have a screenshot of the ads it was up for a few hundred australian bucks it can be shipped internationally it was buy online see? you know the guy still has a gallery even though he forfeited this case immediately because of the nature of what was involved but well and
2: he was just like oh you got me
3: yeah, in this okay. case,
2: oops, he, might be oops. He got, oops.
3: I'll he got do that again. other stuff, but and it was the first time that Australian law was really. Tested. Did he have to serve time now, for that, or
1: he was just fined, or no? no.
3: He'd been busted for smuggling mummies too before in the nineties. Like he had a long reputation for his stuff. Surely, but, at
1: some point, you should lose privileges. <laughs> You're not allowed to sure, ship things sure. anymore, sir.
3: know, but this was the strength case was that it actually at least showed that on really extreme examples, the dealers couldn't fight it. But at the same time, he got away with other stuff, so it pointed out, well, uh, there's a lot of holes in Australian law about smuggling and about antiquities trafficking. You got you need to deal with yeah. this. Uh, yeah. It hasn't really been dealt with yet, but... Um, right, so, but, look, that was, like, the formative years, but it also involves you know, in graduate school and then beyond as an RCO archaeologist in training, really I've come to realize that I can kind of help this fill this gap in what was known about the global antiquities trade. With the cases like what I just mentioned, I think I was already getting the idea that how the human remains trade works might operate differently than, for example, artifact smuggling out of the Near East under ISIS. Um, yeah. And I had a blog for a while, also in graduate school, um, That was, with Heritage Watch and with this blog, was how it got into and connected to that small group of uh, scholars who study antiquities trafficking as a a whole. Um, And they said, you know, you're there in Australia, maybe you can blog about southern hemisphere cases or like find the web pages of galleries in Australia or points on the map not so well surveyed in terms of being a market country for antiquities. Mm -hmm. And you can write about what you're observing, what they're selling, questions about it, for example. And that started to include human remains cases. So I went from there to, I guess, meeting two pivotal final people really that got me into where I am now. I met a law professor and uh, criminologist at the University of Sydney in 2014 a guy named Professor Duncan Chappell. Uh, And he and I, with him, as I was a visiting research scholar in the criminology department there, uh, just kind of off and on as a part-time job, uh, right after my PhD, this was the first time I had to work with someone who was a legal expert, and an Australian legal expert in that case, to just begin the very slow manual way by Google searches to start to look for how many actual brick and mortar stores and online vendors uh, might be out there globally for human remains. So we put together a paper about this. And before that, really, there had been really no published literature at all about uh, the online traffic of this material, except for in 2003, two forensic anthropologists, Called out eBay in the early days of its markets about why were they selling certain things from their expertise? You could see examples of skulls with bullet holes, for example, and oh yikes. Ah, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, and there was a 10-year gap, and we said, well, that's just eBay. We wanted to look at what was what else was out there. And that's from there, I got to the Smithsonian, and the Smithsonian work was. On paper, all about learning isotope methods. And this was working on skeletal collections from excavations and from salvaging from Jordan and Bahrain that the Smithsonian has held for years to decades on permanent loan. But uh, in this case, it was valuable because I also got to meet law enforcement, because law enforcement would come by and they want to. The Smithsonian had a training program with Homeland Security to train agents in. How to understand like laboratory equipment, how to understand collections based research, and how could that be valuable to new cultural property agents who might have cases? So I was honored to get to help with that. But I was still only kind of tangentially looking at human remains in a manual sense. I helped with another case that's ongoing, but the final big thing that really launched what what you have found me as and where I am now really is meeting uh, my colleague, Dr. Sean Graham, who's, he's a digital humanities expert at Carleton University in Canada. He's electric Mm -hmm. RKO on Twitter. So you might know him, you might've seen him. Uh, We had followed each other on Twitter a lot and about 2015 in the SAAs, we finally got to meet in person. (laughs) Yeah. In the coffee line at the Starbucks, which is (laughs) the story we always tell. Oh yeah. That's that's standard. Yeah. It was at that time where, well, you just saw him, Nathan, my partner and I, had just started, we had done, Duncan Chapel, and I had done the paper about Google searching for galleries and just starting to sketch the framework of what might be there. And then a year later, with Nathan's suggestion, in fact, to be honest, uh, hey, what about social media? Like, what about... What about Instagram? What about these things? And before that, we had zero conception to even think to look there. But that really launched, really allowed us to fall down into the rabbit hole of (laughs) seeing how much was there. And I gave this talk to the SAAs in a trafficking panel led, if you've seen her on Twitter as well, by Donna Yates. um, Yeah. um, And that was all the very, very early screenshots just taken by manual screenshot methods of the first few examples we were seeing, Sean comes up to me and says, ah, you guys can do this much faster and I have a lot of techniques that you can learn. And that's, that kind of, that brings everything together. That was the final piece of the puzzle, if you will, to uh, launch whatever everything my career has been as it is uh, from then, all the human remains trafficking, exploration and research, etc., ACTL work—that all stems from that background. And then that final meeting of, someone with the digital chops to train me in that, right. and we can really explode from there. So,
1: yeah, yeah, very cool. So I love your the title of your your current research project, at least as listed on your on your interwebs bio, it's, you can buy that? (laughs) Understanding supply, demand, and authenticity in the human remains trade using data mining and archaeological science. But like, you really can buy that, which baffles me. (laughs) So can you tell us some more about kind of the scope of, I mean,
2: you mentioned eBay, (laughs) right? You mentioned but really, oh, and you mentioned um, an individual's gallery website, right? Did I understand yeah, that correctly? Yeah. That no, he just no, like gallery, his website, like yeah. like Joe Smith Gallery, just,
3: like totally chill. in many galleries that have brick and mortar stores and web presences. Uh, yeah, you know.
1: Yeah. So, so what is the scope of the human remains yeah. trade?
3: okay um that's a big question so, so <laughs> yeah so, so, so yes. it seems um, the title's okay i mean everyone asked me that i go with that you can buy that not just because it's like it is the thing i get asked the most by anyone whoever
0: has here's what i've
3: done but and it's fair enough because it's baffling it still baffles me you know even as a researcher of it it still surprises me that people actually want to collect this material um so yeah the title i gave you was that of my most recent two-year project at Stockholm University, but it's generally still relevant. Um a tiny bit of shameless self-promotion before oh, I no that.
1: Heck yeah! if you want to
3: still any of your listeners still want to um follow along with the most current manifestations of where all this is, um can I direct them to it's all one word, bone trade dot and that should bring up our website the bone trade project that dr graham and i have made and on that you can see links to open access papers talks we've given oh perfect perfect that's both uh contemporaneous with when i was at stockholm university from 2017 to 2019 roughly but then more recent stuff as we go further into 2020 and beyond that's where updates will happen fyi
2: yeah will include that in our show notes.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: um our listeners can either go to our website um and it'll be listed there but also a lot of podcatchers have that option to just like click straight through and it opens like in your mobile device browser. Yeah, but yeah, it'll all, all be automatically uh, yeah up there. So that's yeah, that's awesome. <laughs>
0: It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K U L T U R O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members.
3: Right. So to get back to your question, yes, like, yeah, yes, you can buy that. And yes, it is horrifying (laughs) than it all seems. I mean, yeah, undoubtedly, right, unpublished casework reports from law enforcement exist. We don't deny that. And as civilians, we don't expect them to always share that with us because they have their own investigatory methods. But yeah, of course. from the researcher, civilian researcher point of view, really it's only the last few years that, that e-commerce and social media has even been done to be conceived of as places where the buying and selling of the debt can occur. Um, so. You know, what you all need to understand is that, like in many types of the antiquities trade, items will surface, what we call surfacing, and disappear all the time. Surfacing being, it's this skull or this artifact has never been known or seen before or heard of until the moment it pops up in a sales catalog, on a website, on a social media profile. And monitoring every channel is a real challenge, of course. So let's not deny that a lot of this can happen offline, too. Um, and we see cases where, again, like all other types of trafficking, like you'd expect the really high end dealers to be, you know, well connected enough to their potential clientele that they can sometimes just bypass the use of the web anyway, and they'll know that people will come to them, but the bulk of the trade still would need to have this platform to get out there and advertise that they exist and they're syncing, if you will, um, Yeah, and you know, like, back in our 2014 paper, and then more currently, as we look on social media, we see major markets that exist in a lot of Western countries, US, UK, Belgium, the Netherlands, France, Australia, Canada, dealers in almost every, well, former colonial, currently Western power you can think of, will have a part of this collective community. Um, And Yeah, so it surprised us that, especially when you start to look at social media, we see that this trade is a lot more widespread in terms of the number of items, items when I say items, I mean the dead, parts of the dead moving from country A to country B, much bigger than we thought, even if it is more of a niche market than the usual types of stuff smuggled in antiquities networks. Um, And yeah, I mean, we don't fully understand the entire extent of how much the internet and social media is or can be used and abused in this. Um, but we know that, as you might be as you might suspect, we, we see plenty of evidence for very complicit awareness and non-compliance of certain platforms in this activity. Um, the laws behind that and how and why that happens is still very much being investigated and something that needs to be challenged. But... Right. In general, though, think of it as it's the story that often sells the skeleton. Mm-hmm. Whether or not there's truth behind what the dealers are saying is another matter. And, of course, you'd have to have law enforcement or another forensic expert be able to seize the remains in question to then allow civilians to bring science to bear and, and you know, collect the data needed uh, to check or put the lie to Whatever story has been attached to those remains, uh, often they're very much out in that field. But you know, the problem is that it's, the internet is, like others have said, it's unleashed the shackles of the sales room. It's you know anything, <laughs> anytime, anywhere, if you will. So right, it's,
1: we um, um we talked briefly on a on a different episode about the uh, the case of the Persian princess mummy, uh, yes. and that that is really such a good example of trying to sell remains with with a gussied up story yes yeah. you know, and claiming that, claiming that she's a, a princess and, and it's and,
2: also yeah. another um it's a very um evocative powerful mm-hmm. example mm-hmm. of the relationship between the trade of remains and human trafficking mm-hmm. so just sort of that the, the right because this one may have been a straight up murder i mean we don't know and, but yeah, so that that's something that um, no, I'm, I'm. Thank you so much for bringing up that point. Uh, no, that's great. Like that, the narrative uh, that that pushes, to some degree, pushes it these sales. Like yeah, and like
1: many other artifacts, you know, th- this this was once on the wall of the temple of, course. of whatever.
3: Of course. Like people can say yeah. whatever they want. Like social media platforms are not in the business of and don't have the. Loop. They're not tasked with. And arguably, nor should they, be arbiters of all free speech, obviously. But then the flip side of that is, of course, what do you do with hate speech, what do you do with, in our case, you can say whatever you want about what you're yeah. telling. You can false advertise as much as you want. It doesn't have to actually...
2: Yeah, you're not, yeah. You're
1: yeah. not liable so, for truthful no, reporting. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
2: These these platforms are tasked with storytelling. Exactly. exactly. And, that, and storytelling um, is a neutral term. Indeed. You can tell... Uh, fictional stories, you can tell violent stories, you can tell
3: uh, macabre uh, stories, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. In um, fact, you raise yes. a good point actually, if I may. Yeah, like okay. as we've thought about the ethics of like how to talk about what we're doing about our research. Because <clears throat> when you research with you know public or sometimes even uh, semi-private group Trafficking of material by people, you know, authentically or allegedly engaging in criminal or very suspicious activity, which antiquities trafficking would fall in that category. Like, to do that research as a civilian, it has to move into and get reviewed by ethical review boards as expected. But we're realizing that even how we talk about what the data we get if we call it social media posts, as opposed to what, we, what we're starting to talk about it now, the most recently is advertisements on social media. Yeah. We draw that distinction between this is an example of, and therefore data from someone, you know, using a real or fake name with these human remains, turning it into an advertisement for something to buy and sell via a social media platform. Separated separate it from what most people think of as a social media post is everything from cute kittens to food porn, like take a right. pick. It's yeah. Weird. Instead I'm of like, like I went to a museum yeah. distinctly. Yeah. It's
1: like, it's like, you know, drug laws, if you are caught with, you know, possession with intent to sell, it's something different from, you know, simply possessing drugs, Indeed. but
3: and even that's a not, whole nother department. Right. Even selling fake drugs is still a crime. Like, right.
2: Yeah. 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 Right. Um, when our listeners are listening to this, I just looked up, so it was back in, um, episode 30, 36 is when we, so long ago. I know. And so actually it was, <laughs> um, around the, I think about when our listeners will be hearing this, it'll be a year ago.
0: Okay. So mm-hmm. this was really a that year right. ago
2: that, that we first, um, got to know a little bit about what your work is and some of the things that that came forward in your work and then work like yours uh, was just completely mind blowing. Like just to, to think about, um, about what sorts of things are, um sold or what sorts of things are purchased oh, and we talked about that that vice article about that one oh, awful well, guy Well yeah. get, that's another question anna <laughs> okay sorry <laughs> sorry i got excited <laughs> but um even in like when you were talking about this gallery that um there were the there are um skeletal remains with the dirt still on them mm-hmm. and with like corroded jewelry still on mm-hmm. them like mm-hmm. i found that um that was very um It's upsetting and harrowing. And and just as a little bit more context for you, um, our listeners know um, that we have rather strong views about um, remaining mindful of the fact that archaeological remains are human beings Mm -hmm. and that there is. And so when we are doing show notes, we include wherever we can comments about whether you will be looking at human remains in these messages Correct. and just to kind of continue in that that vein of respecting the fact that there was a person involved in this that did not give their consent to participate mm-hmm. in any of this mm-hmm. um right. and um i'm not we're not here to decide when somebody stops being a person and somebody's like values stop mattering um. Um, but it's something that hearing even having even thinking like this and even like having a project like we have that where we think about this all the time, the difference in how I responded to what you were saying with having those skeletal remains with the dirt on them, Mm -hmm. when you said, well, this guy previously had been busted for um, bringing in mummies. And I was like, well, yeah, of course. Like that's like, (laughs) it's something that I find like reprehensible, but it is somehow normalized. Like it's something like, if Maybe because you've heard about the Victorians well, doing it. Well, yeah, and I've like, been to a museum. And like, I have, so yeah, yeah. it's something that there is the sort of, these are, these are the things that you expect. If someone were to, to do this, like, of course that's what they do. But then like you describe something else, like later mm-hmm. in that same sentence mm-hmm. that I was just like, why would, why, why? Yeah.
3: Um, and so <laughs> I can, why? And,
2: yeah, and I can, only begin to imagine what you have come across. And so yeah. I'm just wondering, um is there something that comes to mind that is the most striking or unusual or memorable or upsetting um object? Yeah. Like, well, artifact, I, I don't know, or like unit of or, per- or, a person? Yeah, unit, yeah. How do, that, how do, how do we <laughs> that you have, quantify that? Yeah, that you've seen for sale or you've seen evidence has been purchased. Yeah. Is there something that um just really either because you're like why would you like from just sort of the what to the like oh my god why would you yeah yeah. we want to hear your stories uh,
3: and you also you raise a great point like just the very fact that we have to both as you know interested readers as listeners as researchers think about you know the doing of the research makes us have to think about those who would take Parts of the dead, or the whole body, or you know many other manifestations, and turn it by the selling-buying act into things to come—things that are commodified—which gets to the heart yeah. of that issue. But yeah, I mean that, that's a real kettle of fish question. It's a good question. Like so far by now, it's almost become the case of—I'm and I'm not exaggerating—if you can imagine it existing within the world of human remains of uh, various ages, or conditions, or contexts. I i don't think I'm exaggerating when I say I've probably seen an example uh. selling it, or alleging they have an authentic example of it, or expressing desire for it. Um, and that runs the gamut from circa 1800s dioc quote-unquote trophy skulls with clear signs of trauma, mm. like uh, oh no. to mummy parts, feet hands to what we think might have been the face of a bog body uh, oh the face. the face just the face can huh can you imagine just yep yeah do very well Don't yeah, to, yeah. but yes uh, <laughs> uh to alleged, you know world war one and world war two victims oh that's okay. a couple days ago someone selling um or posting as, you know, on their profile in a Facebook group, an example of, they, you know, many angles of a skull with fractures, with bu- a clear bullet wound through it. Uh, and there's these, oh, you know, look at these pictures of, here's this blood force trauma, here's this, there's that. Oh, I didn't know what well I had entirely, the guy wrote on the comments. Until I tried to show the skull into a separate public forensic anthropology-themed group. And mm-hmm. some suggested it was probably someone who was in a, a, a world war or had injuries that would fit the type of fighting that you would see right. from a, you know, in that era. And then I took it out of the group when some started to get offended that it was in private hands. So now I've put it mm. into this buying and selling group. To show off to you guys to take a look uh not for sale but you know message me if you want to talk you see that all the time uh yeah you know i've seen bones fresh out of coffins i i've used in a presentation several times an example of a clip on youtube that we found a few years ago that's still up we reported it straight away it has been taken down cool 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 Uh, somewhere in India, we think East India, Nagaland, that area, Bangladesh, uh, you you know, a young, young guy, maybe in his early twenties, sorry to say, you don't see his face much. Um, his friend is on the ground surface filming. He is in a burial cut. It looks to be a, probably a pretty modern burial because you can see like, scraps of what looks to be pretty modern clothes and jerseys but the skeleton is very dirty and he's just there pulling out the bones and he pulls up the skull and it's you know has soil and staining and bits of hair still and on the surface the friend can film it and they're talking about it and that's there on YouTube um bones with every kind of pathology you can imagine trauma uh, it, it goes on and on it's and it doesn't get any prettier to be honest right. it, uh, and that's not to mention the, the uh, separate collecting community of those who seek quote unquote wet specimens. Oh, nope. Yeah, oh. yep, yep. That so is vivid. I'll leave that there, that is a vivid descriptor. Yeah, there's that market too, all over South Korea, etc. Um So, yeah, that's a little taste. Um, I apologize to your listeners, but. It, no,
1: I mean, it's really interesting. It's just a real bummer. Yeah, it is.
3: It's, and there's still, you know, plenty of times, almost every other day, and I'm just doing my rounds and checking the usual channels, and I still frequently find examples of, that make me say, wow, like, you can buy that? Why do you want to buy that? You know, <laughs> how the hell would you ever desire that? It's, right. Right. It's, it's never stopped being a source of both. Personal revulsion. I feel the emotions, but then you also have to take a step back as a researcher and try and treat it neutrally as a yeah, thing, as pattern, as an action of human behavior. But it's still can be stomach-turning. Yeah,
1: yeah. So you said you were you were doing your your digital rounds. Yeah. Um, what does a typical? I mean, if you don't mind yeah. uh, telling us a few trade <laughs> secrets, but what what is a typical kind of search? look like for you and because you mentioned that you are interested in using big data to help you find unethical dealers um and so how how do you do that Yeah,
2: because I'm imagining you're just like scrolling through Instagram that you like are like hashtag something and you're just scrolling Mm -hmm. through Mm -hmm. and like because I have no concept of (laughs) what this looks like like what what do you actually
1: use I'm imagining a scene from you know, a procedural crime drama where you have about eighteen no, screens in front of you, yeah. and maybe some holograms. We've got we've got oh, Polly Perrette,
2: like
3: yeah. with her <laughs>
2: multiple monitors
3: <laughs> montage. She has much better hair than me, so i yeah, can well. <laughs> but, You're I not alone her. in that camp. Uh, no, I mean that's a great question. Like, I guess I'll approach it like this. So, like I said before, you know, as other researchers have mentioned, when you think about big data and the internet's effect on trafficking overall and you know what has e-commerce done and especially then the ballooning of it and the special kind of environments that social media creates as i mentioned before you have that unleashing the shackles with a sales room sales room phenomenon Um, yeah so that has by the very nature of where much of this activity is moved to that's what's moved into the realm of big data in its own way but not in the normal sense necessarily that's like big data scientists would think of m- most concepts of big data, really. Well, in my opinion, when we think of big data as applied to trafficking research, we're mostly talking about all the metadata that is generated, mm-hmm. right? Every time. Oh, a, okay. Right, like, yeah. Every time a seller posts an advertisement remains for sale or a dealer posts an image of something in their collection to wet appetites, it's not just the image itself. Uh, so, okay, in terms of getting the data, like you mentioned, there's manual methods, there's a variety of scraping programs. If if the platform in question allows it, or has it modified its its what we call API to mm-hmm. prevent it, which is always another question, oh. it's still done manually, or like you said, you know, you follow hashtags, you follow handles. There are technical ways. There's the, 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 the high-tech, high-tech world, but... Uh, and again, it also all depends on how big of a market you have across how many different groups on social media and how many different platforms. So far, at least, the human remains world is not nearly approaching the size of something that my colleagues are doing You'll look at Near Eastern Antiquities trafficking on social media, that's exponentially bigger. So they have much bigger data to work with. But for our approach, and given the nature of the, the global, the finite, the kind of dispersed community that we have of the bone collectors, right, it's the image itself, not and the comments and the text, of course, but you can quantitatively or qualitatively look at, you know, Patterns of the number of likes, of retweets, of, and again, like I said, how hashtags are used. Are they used Mm, mm -hmm. on Instagram just as individual terms? Are they used as deliberate misspellings to indicate Mm -hmm. certain things? Of course, and that says nothing about across languages, but even within English, you know, is it a code word or is it an accidental misspelling or is it something more deliberate to signify something else? And are the hashtags using combination what they call hashtag stuffing right um and then most recently what sean and i have been doing is more on the image side of things like there are programs you can use to really dive into how an image is analyzed and composed is it what colors is it uh like is more prominent can you take know, enough screenshots with a big enough data set and then run these programs that can detect evidence of use of filters and alterations. And oh, can you figure out like a signature uh, of an individual sorry, photographer? Maybe that, yeah.
2: So that's what I that's believe. for. That's more for like identifying perpetrators, not like I don't know. Like because like really just, people are people more likely to buy something with like a Valencia filter? Like, a, <laughs> like I'm right. just trying to like understand. I'm a
1: fan of crema. right
3: to, you're right, but. Yes, in a way, because it all goes into the realm of like silent ways or what do you call it, non-obvious ways that collectors or dealers communicate to each other or show they have something available for sale. When hashtags that mention explicitly for sale are used, do the images look like, how do the images look like? Is it the skull in the foreground? Is there anything in the background, you know, how does lighting used? Is it on the shelf? Is it not? Is it like We want to get at what we call the rhetoric of the bone trade, which is how our, our the grant that we have from the Canadian government that led to the bone trade project. That's how, that was the seed that allowed this phase of our research to go on. That's, it's not just that we see evidence that people are buying and selling the dead online but you know how to what extent how are they visually and textually communicating in ways that the algorithms of these platforms that are allegedly supposed to track this stuff yeah if they were ever allowed to actually do their job and if the companies cared which is another kettle of fish right but the dealers in all these type material can easily get around this stuff you can trick the algorithms but we want to know how is that done it's like it gets into the realm of even like forensic image manipulation yeah and it's all a way that you can look kind of backtrack and try and find out you know some of the secrets of how this community operates
1: there there is no perfect crime
3: exactly that they don't really want to advertise and that's that's how we use big data that's the type of data that we use right
1: Yeah, so listeners, don't treat this as a how-to episode for setting up your own boat
3: shop. Trust me, it's a lot more complicated and risky and problematic, and there are always people watching, so
2: good Um, So, (laughs) I have a bit of a follow-on question for that so so you just like really like beautifully laid out the sort of ways that you're almost like developing kind of typologies of of these um of sellers or owners or owners who could be sellers Mm, and sort of the um this intentional dubiousness and the and these Mm -hmm. things that are um subtle nods to to one another um is it and you've also alluded to or made direct reference to um the kind of limitations of of prosecution on this or even mm-hmm. like or whether there like isn't a law about it or the law isn't enforced or it's easy to get around um is this uh, are, is all of this brought like it, it has all of this developed out of well, I don't know necessity? Does there have to be such uh, like subterfuge and like like shadiness about this, or is it stemming from an already sort of existing career in illicit Shady trafficking? Oh, yeah, and so it's just this is just another, or is this sort of um, putting something in place so that if and when there are actual like like very strict readily enforceable laws about these mm. things, they already have that infrastructure in place.
3: that's yeah, a uh, good question, actually. Um, even if we knew the full extent of the bone trade everywhere across all countries, all platforms, at any one time, I don't think it's... I don't feel it's ever going to approach the scale of the other more famous types of trafficking, right. even within the antiquities itself. Okay. So it's... You don't get as much networks and crazy interconnections and groups with thousands and thousands of members, as you will, in other categories. eBay used to have the bulk of some of the more upfront, obvious markets from probably late 90s all the way through 2016, when finally eBay, after pressure and public exposure and media exposure and that forensic anthropologist 2003 paper, Mm -hmm. calling them out. Finally, in 2016, they developed algorithms that work generally well enough to actually enforce a ban they put on for almost all human remains material, except modern hair and modern teeth. People still try and sneak onto eBay to use it, um, but that's another story entirely. Right. So that kicked so much of the traffic to these other platforms like Facebook and Instagram, I'd probably do Twitter. I've seen some on Reddit. Um, of course, WhatsApp. There's now these other messaging tools that
2: right.
3: allow quick on and off flash sales, if you will. The main players, love you know within Facebook, Instagram, and Facebook, the big thing that I and others have said is that when people have asked, oh, isn't it all on the dark net? Why, don't you have to go way to the depths of the bowel? <laughs> no, no, because... These platforms and the way the way they were designed has made them so easy to co-opt right. by communities wanting to do illicit activities. In most cases, you do not need to hide it that well. So, like to back your question, these patterns, these signals we're seeing, to me, are not really out of caution because, with the exception of since 2017, when some of mine, Sean's work actually started to. Uh, get out into the media and we publish open access anyway because we believe in that. Right. But then a few of like a couple of papers of ours, one especially, was picked up and dropped into by admins and you know, deal a couple of these groups, which caused a bit of a freakout. out. But, <laughs> but they're still there, they're still using it. Instagram, like, you know, the prevalence of dealers on that site has kind of gone a little bit in waves recently, but they know that the enforcement is basically nothing. Like they know it's an open field. So I think that oh, what I, you know, the the pattern we're seeing, the rhetoric they're developing is to communicate sort of out of caution, but not, not caution born of what they feel is necessity. I don't think. Okay. A lot of the deals are made in private direct messaging but they can signify to each other that it's more like if you know what to look for you know that this dealer who wants to specialize in this material will have a lot more than they have on their profile
2: okay
3: and then if you please come and talk to him or her and you can get the lowdown of the full extent of what they might have coming up or what they could be bartered with for trades, for example. It's, yeah, it's.
1: Maybe it's a little bit about exclusivity, too. Yeah, like you're in a private sure. club now. I mean,
3: in, in our 2017 paper, which, again, if you're interested, it's on our bone trade project website, or mm-hmm. in internet archaeology, it's the Insta Debt. Yeah. Was we, that
2: was one of the items that we used as a as a reference Mm -hmm. uh, when we did the script for our last episode Um, and and we that's in the show notes for episode 36 Uh, so we very much appreciate your commitment to open source publishing uh, because we have a lot of listeners who are not academics and who don't have Mm -hmm. or who are academics that just happen to not have access to like institutional memberships and like subscriptions so yeah (laughs) anna referenced a a guy in a vice article um Mm -hmm. and so um in that last episode where we talked about this there was a vice feature that covered an american guy Mm -hmm. named ryan Mm Cohn, who has this his apartment is just full of pieces (sighs) of humans and Mm -hmm. and so they have this photo of this like unfortunately like good looking person like and let me show you my yeah like a very Uh, yeah like sexy thing but like why but why Why? do you think people are interested in owning parts of other people and so why so my my last question my sort of like like why why are they doing this is this also sort of this the sense of like flouting taboo right or is this something that Mm -hmm. is you certainly have your own work cut out for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, like, have you had um, conversation patterns? And have you had conversations with other researchers who might be looking at like almost like the, the psychology or the sociology mm-hmm. of people that want to own bits of other people. Mm-hmm. You talked about this at the top of our conversation with sort of the, um, the correlation between yeah. uh, these traffickings and people who um, live in places with um, imperial and colonial past, mm, mm. and I would go so far as to say there is a connection between those things. Oh, um, right. <laughs> but but why do people want to own people? Why <laughs> own dead people? Like that why is that
3: why? Yeah. That was that a thing? <laughs> Again, it's it's a very complicated question. you said it's the topic of it could be the topic of plenty. You know, of research species and etc and across you know certain social sciences but and yeah you know i do often chat about this with colleagues studying other collect- types of collecting communities because uh, again you see a lot of overlap in you know what's known about the reasonings and the motives of the collectors but then of course it's not entirely overlapped because in my case they're dealing with the collecting of the dead themselves It's always going to be different logistically, different emotionally, different psychologically than Ushaptis or bits of papyrus, for example. Right. Right. So, right. I I think it's, yes, it comes down to, in many ways, both, it's this rehashing of these colonial ideals uh, that, you know, it is a status symbol to show that you have the money and connections and time to collect, you know, the exotic other, basically,
1: Mm. But yeah, it's, it's something that you don't think of as a person necessarily
3: you commodify it into it goes from person to part of person you know stripped of any kind of agency or identity to thing to buy and sell and that makes it all right yeah but as i've seen plenty examples of uh, people showing off on social media there are individuals like you said with uh the gentleman you mentioned uh and many others who have been collecting the dead for so long they have, you know, whole walls of their apartments or house set up as huge modern day wonder cover yeah. cabinets. It not- doesn't
1: seem very welcoming. No. Like if I were to walk into that room, I would
3: be like, eh, goodbye. Right. But, but see, you would never probably be invited.
2: That's true. I have a feeling party? I would be invited. I have a no. feeling that this is like a tender date, could
3: end up with me being like, oh no. Right. <laughs> no. If there's are a tender date of yours, you just run the other way. Though. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, over and over again, like what we've noticed is quite different, I think. At least as we've observed it to dates so by some of these channels, the bone collecting community is different compared to papyrus or freshly rooted antiquities of any type, for example. Yeah. yeah, This was never a community, I don't think, that was born out of or designed to attract the uber rich. Uh-huh. You see plenty of examples in dialogue, in photos, of people talking all the time about their... They do it because they love the dead. The, the good ones do it because... You know, we love the dead. We, we, we want to respect. We respect the dead. We would never collect anything unethical. I mean, it's cognitive dissonance to me, but. but, but like, do but, they
2: think, do they think that they what? are like, like <laughs> Neolithic, like Neolithic people at Chateau like putting their like ancestors, like in the, Under in their the floorboards? floorboards? Like, is it, do they think that they are sort of the, the sort of spiritual like, descendants like, descendant of, of the people who are like honoring the dead by being with them? Uh, keeping them mm, around only in the most
3: abstract sense ah, okay <laughs> I and tried. it's
1: very
2: yeah you tried amber
1: good
3: job they're not collecting their own dead they're collect- usually collecting other cultures very much the dead of other cultures or times or places yeah right okay you see the one thing you see in common across a lot of collecting communities including the dead amongst some collectors at least is the collectors like mythos the collectors as heroic saviors if you will Mm-hmm. The common dialogue from Oshampis uh, to orchids to the to the Western collecting community who is around the world, connects by social media and other means. We want to collect this material because we think it is something under threat, whether it is or not, or we think you know the people who are its descendants, real descendants in the home countries, mm-hmm. can't take care of it. That's more common for antiquities. In our case, it's a lot of dialogue of, well, you know, we can find the osteology textbooks and the articles and, you know, us collectors, we can study human remains just as well as professional academics. Those academic nerds, like, how dare they, you know, build careers from the excavation and museum or laboratory-based study of properly curated remains? We can collect the dead ourselves and do the same thing. And we'll, we'll know as much as they will.
2: So is it, is it like a perversion of the concept of, of fighting back against gatekeeping? Like, do they feel that that professionals Mm. are being elitist with it, by their ethics and their, their training?
3: Very much so. But you see that, but then the other side of it is, like I said, plenty of examples of, you know, I have a small collection, You know, I'm just a minor player. I have a few skulls. I love death. I respect the dead. But I want to sell this because I really need to pay my bills. Mm. Literally. Like, Mm -hmm. you see that kind of thing where it's... This is a community that operates on a variety of different socioeconomic classes, I think. As opposed to the usual antiquity collecting community, which is, for the longest time, especially before the internet, but even still has tended to hit the upper echelon of society more who can afford the often very, very expensive prices that authentic looted items, well authentic items, many of which could be freshly looted, say out of the Middle East, can fetch on the market hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. You rarely see those prices, whether it's social media based or gallery based, you don't see that that often at all. the Baudry collecting community, it's a different, it's a different sphere.
1: On to crime well, uh, and well, crime fighting. Continuing with crime. <laughs> well, yeah, continuing with crime and, and moving on to uh, your superhero identity. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about the Alliance to Counter Crime Online, ACCO? How did it start and how did you get involved?
3: Uh, well, we started in late 2018. Um, our executive directors who were originally and are still founders of an organization, an umbrella organization called sindoc which is the Center for Lizzie Networks and Transnational Organized Crime. Um, mm-hmm. They basically just come out because they reached out to experts in a variety of trafficking research specializations, not just in academia like Sean and I, but in the policy world and in NGOs and beyond. And just by email and by conversation, we all just kind of agreed we need to form an alliance to better take on the common battle that we all saw and shared, which is the ease with which e commerce and social media can be used for illicit activity, the lack of oversights, and the need to reform legislation. And then
2: also, if our listeners wanted to get it, if our listeners have expertise in, in any mm-hmm. of the relevant um, or maybe us, or if they want to learn more or if mm-hmm. they, if there's a way to support the work yep. that, that you're doing, um, how might, how might they be able to do that?
3: Sure thing. Um, yeah, we do that in a variety of ways through, through research, through advocacy, through, you know, we, we are also on social media, even on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter at countering crime, for example, through, we have a lobbying arm. We have a variety of tactics, if you will, um, research but also working to connect that research to policy if you will mm-hmm. uh, but to, to for the public if the best way to get involved is really by visiting our website which is counteringcrime.org and that's one word countering crime or we're on twitter at countering crime uh, you can keep up with our work and on the website you can see our various petitions that we often run and uh, these will go to Select relevant members of U.S. of the current U.S. Congress in the relevant committees that deal with, you know, technology, uh, e-commerce, etc. In which we are trying to actively show that the public sees and cares about the work that we're doing, and also has an interest in reforming the laws that govern tech. Uh, And then, of course, then on that same tech, you can also like us, follow us the more that the public (laughs) boosts us on the same tech that we've been talking about. Uh, it also helps the group as a whole in our work, get traction internally. So,
1: so if, if you could, um, you know, imagine an ideal world where the right types of legislation are starting to be put in place to protect remains of, you know, human remains wherever and, and from whenever, um, what would that kind of, what would that look like?
3: Sure. Um, I'll give you the general answer because I think Thank you. <laughs> anything any of our members have been tracking from sex trafficking to wildlife to antiquities, remains, drugs, etc. cetera. Um, so collectively, we believe that ideal legislation fundamentally will make it illegal to host criminal activity online full stop so that tech platforms, basically, they must become responsible for removing criminal content from said platforms. Uh, yes, this laws then by legal efforts will make tech platforms less profitable, but that's why these platforms are fighting it. So, yeah. if you can see, we want this legislation to strip their ability to fight it, which will also, in its own rights, make the internet safer for all of us who use it. If it's illegal offline, should be illegal online. Is yeah. the yeah. general motto that we're using here. Very, very and reasonable. Some areas, areas of course. But well, we're not talking about the, the antiquities trade, and human remains trade, even the human remains trade. Some will say to us, why do you really care about that? That's a victimless crime, which of course I think, we sure think that's not the case in the slightest, but <laughs> but then they may point to things like sex trafficking or drugs, where the public can obviously see front and center a victim, the user yeah. or the trafficked person. So we're saying, well, laws that can address all of this collectively, without wiggle room or loopholes, is the is
1: the goal. You have chosen yourself a project.
3: <laughs> yes, it is a project for sure. Yeah, but we are committed to fighting it. So
2: yeah. Yeah. It's, oh, it's very admirable. Thank you. Thank you for, oh, for bringing, bringing us on. Thank this, you for this the training. work that you do. Yeah. Thank well, thank you for me. your work. Thank sure. you for your time. But uh-huh. our last two <laughs> questions are um, questions that we ask all of our uh, interview guests. And so it's really fun to see um, how people who do anthropology, mm-hmm. uh, how they can have such widely uh, varying answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this mm-hmm. is, so this, these are these are more fun. These are done. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, then, if you want to have an answer that isn't fun, that's fine too. <laughs> oh yeah, oh,
1: sure. Yep. No pressure to be fun.
2: Uh, so, to you, what is the best thing about anthropology?
3: Well, I mean, yeah. Look, anthropology as a whole, I would say what's always attracted me to it, and I've, as I've learned more about it as i have going on, it's so flexible. All the different areas that hide not just within each of the four you know, U.S.-based subfields, but as a concept of the study of humanities, all like, I always like the new ways that its ideas and principles and its worldview, what it teaches us as anthropologists, even archeological anthropologists, how we can use these to address issues like what we've been talking about, that some of the disciplines founders would never ever have conceived of even. And, it's, and yet, it's a constantly malleable tool that can be, by its very flexibility, so increasingly relevant for modern times, I think. When it has dialogue with the other social sciences, and humanities, and it's such a good field for interdisciplinary interdisciplinarity. Anyway, um, and then yeah, in archaeology as well. Um, you know, osteoarchaeologists is an archaeological science, and in that same way, that we're not limited to one thing in our bag of tricks. But to what I what attracts me the most is the challenge of bringing that together. Like, to wring all the details that we can out of a skeleton, for example. Or in in our case, take osteology, combining with digital humanities, combining with technical you know, programming and you know, like computer science, for example, to put it all together to then try to tackle this issue of trafficking online that neither of those disciplines by themselves would really think, oh, this is something I can be used for.
1: Um, And then our final question. If you could have been present for one particular moment or discovery in either history or anthropology or archaeology, what would that be?
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I mean, beyond perhaps the wish of all of us who have spent more than one or more seasons on an excavation uh, at a site that became near or dear to them, of course, we might all have the desire to go back and see a day in the life of that community, like... In graduate school, I worked on this 3800 year old uh, cemetery and village site it's called Nam Doc in northern Vietnam, and for two seasons. And then did some laboratory based analysis of an older site and, and you know I would still love to go back and plunk myself into the middle of that little community at some point in its life over its two hundred years of existence, and just meet the people see them like observe a funeral see such things like i think a lot of us yearn for that yeah oh absolutely if you will
1: i have so many questions and i would just like to go back and just i
3: yell
2: (laughs) what were you doing (laughs) i want to meet the person whose little sticker is on the like pot of my lush body wash (laughs) and like (laughs) so like that's, you know, so that's like set manageable goals. Right. But I mean, well, like, I, I, <laughs> like, I want so much to meet that person, much less the person that like created the ceramic materials that mm-hmm. I studied mm-hmm. in grad school. Mm-hmm. Like,
3: and I guess the last thing I'll say is um, I mean, in a, in a general sense, I'd also be interested in like being present when, for example, Encore Watts or Machu Picchu were quote unquote rediscovered in like the Mm. 1800s, 1900s, but in the sense of being first revealed to the wider world, which is not to discount, of course, that local communities never really forgot these quote unquote lost cities were there. But if you get my drift, like to be a fly on the wall is Hiram Bingham, you know, pushed aside some of the last bits of foliage and oh wow, this is what wonders are before me, kind of thing. It's right. Does that make sense? I
2: yeah, know. yeah, it really okay. does. Yeah,
3: for, for sure.
1: sure. Thank you so much for for talking with us and for doing what you do and for sharing that with our
3: listeners. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank yeah. you for having me.
2: Yeah, we got we had a lot of um we had a lot of positive feedback um and interest in in that episode when we did it the first time and so it's just on, on curating human remains no, yeah no. and and so it it's just such an honor to to bring in the person that was was really the, the, well, the celebrity
1: guest
3: oh,
2: uh, but yeah, thank uh, you for I know that you are a few hours ahead of each of us. Um, and so thank you so much for taking time out on your Saturday uh, night to like, when yes, you probably yes. should be like decompressing from having uh, to do this all the time. Like just, uh, all right.
3: Thank you so much. All right. All
1: right thank you so Absolutely. much. Absolutely. Have a great night. You too. Bye.
3: Bye. Bye.
0: This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.